Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my podcast about big ideas and other problems. Today, we're going to talk about one of the biggest ideas of all, automation in the workplace, specifically something called robotic process automation, or RPA. Now, RPA isn't robots in factories, which is what you probably thought of when I said automation. This is different. RPA is software, software which uses other software, like Excel or an Oracle database. So if you have an office building full of accountants doing repetitive tasks on their computers, you might replace them with RPA. Now, I know what you're thinking. That sounds incredibly boring. And I know you're thinking that because I have been trying to get people at The Verge to write about RPA for years, and they have all told me that it's boring, and then they didn't do it. Here's Verge features reporter Josh Chesa. I ended up looking into it, and it seemed important, but hard to make a compelling story out of, and wrote something completely different about automation. Here's former Verge features editor Michael Zelenko. I don't remember anything about robotic process automation, and it sounds so boring that I probably forgot about it. And here's former Silicon Valley editor Casey Newton. What I remember is you sent me like three or four sentences in Slack, and I contemplated them and thought, this is not a wild goose that I particularly want to chase, because frankly, it just sounded incredibly tedious. It's an important goose, Casey. (laughs) Honk. I would remind you that I am the editor-in-chief of The Verge, and theoretically, I can assign whatever I want, especially about an industry that already generates billions of dollars in revenue and is on pace to be a $20 billion industry by 2027. According to Deloitte, an RPA company called UiPath was actually the fastest-growing tech company in North America in 2019. RPA is a huge shift, hiding in plain sight, because it sounds so boring. And that meant I really couldn't get this story assigned. But today, I have finally found someone who wants to talk about robotic process automation with me. New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos, who's just written a new book called Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. It features a lengthy discussion of RPA, who's using it, who it will affect, and how to think about it as you design your career. Pay attention to the jobs Kevin talks about as he describes the impact of automation. It is not factory workers and truck drivers. It's accountants and lawyers, even journalists. 
If you have the kind of job that involves sitting in front of a computer, using the same software in the same way every day, automation is coming for you. And it won't be cool or innovative or even work all that well. It'll just be cheaper, faster, and less likely to complain. That might sound like a downer, but Kevin's book is all about seeing that as an opportunity. You'll see what I mean. Okay, Kevin Roos, New York Times columnist, author, and the only reporter who has ever agreed to talk to me about robotic process automation. Here we go. Kevin Roos, you're a tech columnist at the New York Times, and you have a new book, Future Proof Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation, just out now. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you for having me. So you're ostensibly here to promote your book, which is great, and I want to talk about your book. But there's like one piece of the book that I am absolutely fascinated by, which is this thing called robotic process automation. And I'm going to do my best with you on the show today to make that super interesting. But before we get there, let's talk about your book for a minute. What is your book about? Because it, it, I, I read it, and it, it has a big idea, and then there's literally nine rules for regular people to survive. So tell me how the book came together. Yeah, so the book is basically divided into two parts. Um, and the first part is basically the diagnosis. It's sort of what is AI and automation doing today in, in the economy, um, in our lives, in our homes, in our communities? How is it showing up? Who is it displacing? Who is at risk of sort of losing career opportunities or you know other things to these machines? What do we sort of think about the arguments that this is all going to turn out fine? Um, what's the evidence for that? Um, and the second half of the book is really the sort of practical advice piece. That's the the nine rules that you mentioned. And so it was my attempt to basically say, like, you know, what can we do about AI and automation? Because I think, you know, you and I have been to dozens of tech conferences, and there's always some talk about AI and automation and jobs. And, you know, some people are very optimistic, some people are very pessimistic, but at the end, there's always like this chart that shows like how many jobs could be displaced by automation in the next 10 years. And then the talk ends. <laughs> it's like everyone just goes to lunch and, you know, and it's like, okay, but I'm sitting there like, what do I do? Like, I am a journalist. I work in an industry that, you know, is employing automation um, to do parts of my job. Like, what should I, what should anyone do to prepare for this? Um, so I just, I wanted to write that because I didn't, I didn't see that it existed anywhere. So you just said uh, we're journalists. It's an industry that employs automation to do parts of our job. I think that gets kind of right to the heart of the matter, which is the definition of automation, right? And, and sort of in the, in the popular, when I, I think when most people think of automation, they think of robots building cars and replacing factory workers in Detroit. You are talking about something much broader than that. Yeah, I mean the the that's sort of the classic model of automation and and still when like every time there's a story about automation I I hate this and it's like my personal, you know, vendetta against, you know, n newspaper and magazine editors like every time you see a story about automation there's always a picture of a physical robot. Yeah. And, and I get it. Like most robots, you know, that we think of from sci-fi are are physical robots. Um, but most robots that exist in the world today by a vast majority are are software. Um, and so what you're seeing today in corporate environments, in journalism, in lots of places, um, is that automation is showing up um, as software um, that does parts of the job that 
you know, frankly, I used to do my, my first job in journalism was writing corporate earnings stories. And, um, and that's a job that has been largely automated by these software products now. So an earnings story is just to put it in sort of an abstract framework, a company releases its earnings. Those earnings are usually in a format because the SEC dictates that earnings are released in a format. You say, okay, here's the earnings per share. Here's the revenue. Here's what the consensus analyst estimates were. They either beat the earnings or didn't. You can just write a script that makes that a story. You don't really need a person in the mix because there's there's almost no analysis to that, right? Right, and that's not even a very hard form of automation. I mean, that technology existed years ago um, because it's very much like filling in Mad Libs. You know, it's like put the share price here, put the estimate here, put the <laughs> revenue here. But now, what we're seeing with GPT three and sort of other large language models that are based on machine learning is that it's not just Mad Libs anymore. I mean, these are these generated texts are getting much better. They're much more convincing um, and compelling. They're much more original. They're not just sort of repeating things that they've picked up from other places. So I think we'll see a lot more AI in journalism in the coming years. So one of the things, so we cover earnings at The Verge. We do it with a very different lens than a business publication, but we, have, we pay attention to a lot of companies. We care about their earnings. We cover them. If I could hire the robot to write the first two paragraphs of an earnings story for a reporter, I think all of my reporters would be like, great. Like, I don't want to do that part. I want to get to the fun part where Tim Cook on the call said something shocking about the future of the Mac, right? And that's the part of the story that's interesting to us anyway. It seems like a lot of the automation story is doing jobs that are really boring, that people don't necessarily like to do. The tension there is, well, shouldn't we automate the jobs that people don't like to do? Yeah, this is the argument for automation in the workplace is that all the jobs that are, you know, automatable are repetitive and boring and people don't want to be doing them anyway and so that's what you'll hear if you, you know, call up a CEO of a company that sells automating software, I mean RPA software, um and that's what I heard over and over again writing this book, but there's also a, a it's it's a little simplistic because automation can also take away the fun parts of people's jobs that they enjoy. Um, there's a lot of examples through, of this through history, um, where you know a factory automates, and the owners of the factory are like, "This is great for workers. They will they hated you know lugging big pieces of steel, and so now we'll have machines do that, and they'll be able to do the fun and creative parts of the job." And then it they like install the automation and, and the and the robots and it turns out that the workers don't like it because that was part of the job that they enjoyed um, was was not necessarily lugging the pieces of steel <laughs> but was sort of the the camaraderie that built around that and the you know the sort of downtime between big tasks and so it's it, it ideally it would be the case that automation only took away the the bad and boring and dull parts of people's jobs but in practice that's not always how it works and now with things like RPA, we're seeing automation that is designed not just to replace one task or two tasks, but is really designed to replace an entire human's workload. Um, the RPA companies now are selling what they call digital workers. Um, so instead of you know automating earnings reports, you can automate entry level you know corporate journalism, um, or or you know you can automate internal communications. There are various ways that this is appearing in the corporate world. But I, I think there's a gap between what the sort of utopian vision of this is and, and how it's actually being put into practice. Let's talk about RPA. I'm very excited. You're the only person who's ever wanted, who's ever volunteered an hour of their life to talk about R RPA with me. So RPA is robotic process automation. 
which is an incredible name, in my opinion, made to sound as dull as possible. Yeah, it's like ASMR. It's like uh, if you want to fall asleep, you could just read a story about RPA. (laughs) The first time anyone told me about RPA, it was a consultant at a big consulting firm. And they're like, our fastest growing line of business is going into like hospitals and insurance companies where they have an old computer system. And it is actually cheaper and easier for us to replace the workers who use the old computer system than it is to upgrade the computer system. So we install scripts that automate medical billing, and they're basically KVM switches, so keyboard, monitor, uh, mouse switches, that use an old computer. Like, they click on the buttons. The mouse moves around and clicks on the old computer system, and that is faster and easier to replace the people than it is to migrate the data out of the old system into a new system, because everyone knows how complicated and expensive that is. And this is our fastest growing line of business. And I thought that was just the most dystopian thing I'd ever heard. But then it turns out to be this massive industry that has grown tentacles everywhere. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, my sort of introduction to this world was um, sort of the same as yours. I was talking to a consultant. Um, I was actually in Davos. This is the only <laughs> time. I, I hate, uh, that's not my favorite way to start a story, but um, <laughs> but we'll go with it. And in, in Davos, you know, the, the, it's this big, conference. It's, I call it the Coachella of capitalism. It's just like, it's like a week long festival of, of rich people and heads of state. And the main drag, the promenade is, is, um, is all like corporate sponsored buildings and tents and, you know, corporations rent out, you know, restaurants and turn them into sort of branded hangout zones for their people and, and guests during the week. And by far the biggest displays on the promenade the year that I went were from consulting companies, Um, consulting companies like Deloitte and Accenture and Cognizant and Infosys and all these companies that are doing massive amounts of business in RPA or what they sometimes refer to as digital transformation. That's sort of the euphemism. And they were spending millions of dollars and bringing in millions of dollars. And it was like, what is going on here? Like, what are these people actually selling? And it turns out that a lot of what they're selling is you know, stuff that'll plug into your Oracle database that'll, you know, allow it to talk to this other, you know, software suite that you use, the kind of human replacement that you're talking about. It's very expensive to rebuild your entire tech stack if you're a, you know, old line Fortune 500 company, but it's relatively cheap to plug in an RPA bot that'll take out, you know, three to five humans in the billing department. One of the things in your book that you, you mentioned, you call this boring bots. And you go into the process by which, yep, you don't show up to work one day and there's a robot sitting at your desk. As a company grows and scales, it just stops hiring some of these people. It lets their jobs get smaller and smaller. It doesn't give them pathways up. I see that very clearly, right? Like if their entire job is pasting from one Excel spreadsheet to another Excel spreadsheet all day, they might themselves just write a macro to do it. Why wouldn't you as a company be like, we're just going to automate that? But all that other stuff in an office is the stuff that you're saying is important, right? The, the social com- camaraderie, the culture of a company. Is that even on the table for these digital transformation companies? It's not really what they're incentivized to think about. I mean, these consulting firms get brought in to cut costs and cut costs pretty rapidly. And so that's their mandate and that's what they're doing. And so some of the way that they're doing that is by taking out humans. They're also streamlining processes so that maybe, you know, you can reorg some of the people who used to work in accounts payable into a different division, give them something to do. But a big piece of the sales pitch is like you can do 
as much or more work with many fewer people. And I, I talked to one consultant in Davos, and I'm sorry, this is the last time I'll <laughs> ever mention Davos on this podcast. I'm putting the over-under on Davos mentions at five. <laughs> I really, it's like the worst name drop in the world. <laughs> uh, but it's it's like the sort of pitch that they're making. I, I talked to one consultant and he said um, that executives were coming up to him and saying, how can I basically get rid of 99% of the people that I employ. Like that was sort of the, the target was not like, how do we automate a few jobs around the edges? How do we save some money here and here? It was like, can we wipe out basically the entire payroll? Um, and is that plausible? And how do we get there as quickly as possible? How big is the total RPA market right now? It, it's in the billions of dollars. I, I don't know the exact figure, but it's, um, you know, the biggest companies in this are called UiPath and Automation Anywhere. And there's there are other companies in this space like Blue Prism. But uh, just UiPath alone is valued at something like $35 billion and is expected to IPO later this year. So these are large companies that are doing, you know, many billions of dollars in revenue a year. Um, and they're working with most of the Fortune 500 at this point. And the actual product they sell, is it basically software that uses other software? A lot of it is that. A lot of it is, you know, this bot will convert between these two file formats or it'll it'll do sort of basic level, you know, optical character recognition so that, you know, you can scan expense reports and import that data into Excel or something like that. So a lot of it is pretty simple. You know, a lot of AI researchers don't even consider RPA AI because so much of it is just like static rule-based algorithms. Um, but they are starting to layer on more AI and, and predictive capability and things like that. So, so you get some that are, you know, this plugs into your Salesforce and, you know, allows it to talk to this other program that maybe is a little bit older. Um, some of it is, you know, converting between one currency and another. But then there are these kind of digital workers, like you can hire, uh, a, I'm making air quotes, you can hire a tax auditor who, you know, you just install, it's a robot, and theoretically that can do the work that a person whose job title was tax auditor did before. Let's say I run a, like a mid-sized manufacturing company. I'm already thinking about, okay, on the line, there are lots of jobs that are dangerous or difficult or super repetitive, and I can run my line 24 hours a day if I just put a robot in there. Then I'm looking at my back office, and I'm saying, oh, I've got a lot of accountants and tax lawyers and I don't know invoice preparers and all these people just like doing stuff. I want to hire want automation anywhere to come in and replace them. What does that pitch look like from the RPA company? Well, I went to a conference for Automation Anywhere. This was pre-pandemic when conferences were still a thing. And, you know, there were executives on stage talking to an audience of corporate executives and telling them that they could save between 20 and 40% of their operating costs by automating jobs in their sort of back and middle offices. And so that pitch, you know, some some companies might save less than that, some companies might save more than that, but that's the that's the sales pitch is we will, you know, you can be more productive, you can free up workers to focus on higher value tasks, oh and also you can shave 20 to 40% off your operating budget. And so they would they would come in and they would assess, okay, you use Salesforce, you use your old database, you use some other program Right. I mean, at the end of the day, back office work is people sitting down in front of a Windows PC and using it. So they're like, which of these tasks are repetitive? Yeah. Which are repetitive? What are the steps involved? Um, 
there are some stories that I've heard of people being sort of asked to train their robot replacements to like kind of walk, <laughs> walk the RPA vendor through, you know, or the consultant through the steps of their job so that that can then be programmed into a script. So there's a lot of that, but there's also sort of reimagining processes and like, do you really need, you know, people in three, you know, separate offices touching this piece of paper or could it be one person and a bot? Um, and so there's a lot of kind of, I, I think part of what they market as sort of digital transformation is just like going in and asking people like, what outdated stuff are you using and how could we modernize that a little bit? We need to take a quick break. When we come back, Kevin and I are going to talk about who RPA affects and what impact it might have on the workforce. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health. And whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, we're back with Kevin Roos. One of the themes here is that maybe the entire national political and cultural conversation about automation is pointed at blue-collar work, right? It's a deindustrialized society. We don't make a lot of things here. Blue-collar workers are hurting all over America. You are talking very much about white-collar workers in corporate America getting replaced by, I mean, let's be honest, very fancy Windows scripting programs. Yeah, I mean, that's where the sort of excess is in the economy. I mean, if you go into a factory today, they're very lean. Uh, most of the jobs that in factories that could be automated were automated many years ago. Um, and especially if you go to places like China, I mean, they're factories that have very few hum humans at all. It's mostly robots. Um, so there isn't a lot of kind of excess there to trim. Um, on the other hand, a lot of white-collar workplaces are still you know, brimming with people in the back office who are doing these kind of repetitive tasks. 
Um, and so that that's sort of the, the strike zone right now is like, if you are doing sort of repetitive tasks in a corporate environment, in a back office somewhere, like your job is not long for this world. But now there's also some more advanced AI that can do kind of more cognitive, repetitive cognitive work. So it's not just, I mean, one, one example I, I talk about in the book is there's a, a guy I met who was making essentially production planning software. Um, so this would be not replacing the people in the factories who are working on the assembly line. It'd be replacing their bosses who tell them, okay, this part needs to be made in this quantity on this day on this machine. And then, you know, two days later, we're going to switch to making this part and we need this many units and, and they need to go to this part of the warehouse. Like all that used to be done by supervisors. Um, and now that work can be mostly automated too. So it's not purely the kind of entry-level data clerks um, that are getting automated. It's also their bosses in some cases. So that, that feels like I could map it to a, a pretty familiar like consumer story, right? You, you've got a factory, it's got some output. It's almost like a video game, right? You've got a factory, it's got some output. You need to make X, Y, and Z parts in various quantities, and they need to, to deliver on a certain time. And to some extent, your job is to play tower defense and just like fill all the bins at the right time. Or you could just play against the computer and the computer will beat you every time. It, I mean, that, that's what that seems like. It seems very obvious that yeah, no, it, you should just let the computer do it. Totally. And that's, that's the logic that a lot of executives have. And I don't even know that that's the wrong logic. Like, I don't think we should be preserving jobs that are, you know, that can be automated just to preserve jobs. Um, the concern I think I and, and some other folks who watch this industry um, have is that this type of automation is purely substitutive. So, you know, in the past we've had automation that came in sort of, it, it carried positive sort of consequences and negative consequences. So, you know, the factory machines put some people out of their jobs, but they created many more jobs and they lowered the cost of the factory's goods and they made it, you know, more accessible to people. And so people bought more of them and it sort of had this kind of offsetting effect where you had some workers losing their jobs, but more jobs being created elsewhere in the economy that those people could then go do. Uh, and the concern that the economists that I've talked to, um, had was that this kind of RPA, this kind of like replacing people in the back office, like it's not actually that good. It's like, it's not, <laughs> it's not the good kind of automation that, that actually does move the economy forward. It's like kind of this crappy, like patchwork automation that purely like takes out people and doesn't give them anything else to do. And so on, on a, I think on a macroeconomic level, this kind of automation is like, the problem is not actually how advanced it is, it's how simple it is. Um, and, and if we are worried about the sort of future of the economy and jobs, we should actually want more sophisticated AI, more sophisticated automation that could actually create sort of dynamic new jobs for these people who are displaced to go into. One of the things I think about a lot is, yeah, a lot of white collar jobs are pretty boring. They're pretty repetitive. It is um, one of my favorite like TikTok paths to go down is Microsoft Excel TikTok. And there's just a lot of people who are bored at work who have come up with a lot of wild ways to use Excel and they make TikToks about it. And it's great. And I highly recommend it to anyone. But their jobs are boring. Like the reason they have fodder for their TikTok careers is because Excel is boring and they've made it entertaining. Isn't that like those jobs, apart from the social element, they are sort of unfulfilling. But at the same time, those are the people who might catch mistakes, 
might come up with a new way of doing something, might flag a, a new idea. Is that cost baked into the automation puzzle? No. And in fact, I've heard some stories from companies that did a big RPA implementation, you know, took out a bunch of workers and then had to start hiring people back because the machines were making mistakes and they weren't catching errors and the quality suffered as a result. So I think there's a danger of sort of overselling the benefits of this kind of automation to these companies. I think some of the some of the firms that are doing this, it's a little more snake oil than than real innovation. So yeah, I, I think there is a danger of kind of over automating. But I I I think the problem is that executives in a lot of companies, and I would say this applies largely outside of tech. Um, this is largely in sort of you know your your beverage companies, your you know hotel chains, your sort of Fortune 500 companies that maybe are running on a little bit of outdated technology. I think they the executives at those companies have come to view labor as purely a cost center. It's like you're optimizing your workforce the same way that you would optimize, you know, your your you know, your factory production. You're trying to do things as efficiently as possible. And I don't think there's a, a lot of appreciation for the benefit that even someone like an Excel number cruncher could have in the organization. Or maybe if you retrain that person to do something different, they could be more productive and more valuable to the organization. But right now it's just a numbers game. They're trying to hit next quarter's targets. And if you know, automating 500 jobs in the back office is the way to do that, then that's what they're going to do. You just brought up retraining. In the book, you're not so hot on retraining. You don't think it has a lot of benefit. How, how does that play out? Well, the, the data just isn't there on retraining. I mean, there have been, that. this is the sort of go-to stock response when you ask, you know, politicians or corporate executives, like, what do we do about automation and AI displacing jobs? And Re, there's reskilling, there's upskilling. There's telling journalists to learn to code. Right, there's telling journalists to learn to code. And like, <laughs> you know, you hear these sort of heartwarming stories about, you know, coal miners who, you know, got laid off and then went to coding boot camp and became Python engineers and like started doing, you know, front end software development. But like those are the exception rather than the rule. There's a lot of evidence that reskilling programs actually don't have um, a long term sort of positive impact on the people who go through them um, in economic terms. And some of that is is probably, you know, about the kind of humans who are participating in them. You know, if you are a coal miner, your your sort of skill set is not well matched to, to be, you know, a, a, maybe it's not well matched to be a, a software engineer. Um, it's not that they're not smart enough to do it. It's that they, frankly, you know, sometimes don't want to do it. It's not rewarding in the same way that the old job was. So the long-term benefit of these reskilling programs um, is still something that we don't have a lot of evidence for. And there's, you know, some, been some estimates that say, you know, private sector reskilling, what they, you know, sort of companies retraining their own workers. And there've been some estimates that like something like only one out of every four private sector workers can be kind of profitably retrained. So we, we're really talking about something that needs to happen at the federal level, um, if it's going to happen at all. And right now there's just no, there's no momentum on that from either side of the aisle um, in Washington to do any kind of federal retraining program. The politician who comes to mind first and most clearly in this in this conversation is obviously Andrew Yang, who ran in the Democratic primary. He, he only talked about automation, basically. He's advocated for universal basic income because he says automation is coming for all of our jobs. Is his approach more focused on the sort of boring bot white collar automation, or is it at the manufacturing level? 
No, and and I think you know this is a place where he and I disagree. I mean, I, I like Andrew. I think he has he was right on a lot, um, but I think you know when he's talking on this on the trail about automation, he's largely talking about blue collar automation. Um, you know, and he talks a lot about truck drivers and manufacturing workers and even retail workers. And I'm I'm sort of sold on this idea that it's those those industries are actually not the issue right now. The the more pressing and urgent issue is white collar automation, and I think something like self driving trucks is a great example of something that I am not as worried about as he is because absolutely there will be self driving trucks and absolutely some truck drivers will lose their jobs, um, and the same goes for self driving cars and you know taxi drivers and delivery drivers. I mean, there's going to be disruption there, but those are actually like gigantic technological achievements and they will, they will unlock huge new industries. I mean, you can just imagine like when there are self-driving cars, like there will be self-driving hotels and restaurants and gyms. And like, there will be all kinds of jobs popping up for, you know, people who are making and selling these cars, who are repairing them, who are programming them, who are, you know, developing the hospitality around them. It's like, there's going to be a lot of dynamism in that industry. Um, so while yes, like it will crush some jobs, it will also save lives because they'll be safer than the human drivers and it'll open up new opportunities for people. So that's an area where I'm actually not as, as pessimistic as Andrew Yang is. What do you think about universal basic income? I think it's a pretty good idea. Um, I think, I mean, what we're learning now with the stimulus checks is that giving people direct cash transfers is a really good idea in times when things are perilous and you need to kind of give people a way to stay afloat. And, and I have, you know, there are other ideas that I think are, are wise too. I mean, right now the, the sort of tax rate for labor is a lot higher than for, for capital and for equipment. So companies are actually financially incentivized to automate more jobs because they get taxed less on, on money that they spend on robots versus on employing humans. So I think equalizing those tax rates um, could be a way to deal with this on a policy level. But ultimately, I think, you know, we have a long way to go on any of this stuff. There aren't really a lot of politicians agitating for this, except for for Andrew Yang. So I think my goal is not to sort of give people perfect policy recommendations. I'm assuming sort of stasis on the government level. And I'm trying to convince people that it's in their interest to take this into their own hands and, you know, come up with their own plans, because I don't think the cavalry are coming. One of the things that I have talked about on maybe every episode of the show is trends that have accelerated in the pandemic. And obviously we're moving to remote work. We're out of offices. Even like maybe three years ago, I was at a Microsoft event and I saw Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, and he was talking about all the things they were doing. And at the end, he's like, and I just heard about this robotic process automation. It sounds amazing. And now it's like, oh, this everyone's doing it. Like Microsoft is in that business. He went from, I thought it was interesting to, if you're writing robots to use Excel, we're going to write the robots for you. That is a huge business. That's a great business for Microsoft to be in. Google's doing it. You mentioned the other two companies that are already big. How much has the pandemic accelerated this curve? A huge amount. I mean, I, I talked to a bunch of consultants, people who who get these calls to come in and automate, you know, the, the call center or the finance department at big companies. And they said they're they're basically two reasons why things have accelerated. One is that 
Um, I think that, you know, the pandemic has created a lot more sort of demand for certain types of services and goods and created some supply chain issues. And so companies actually need to automate parts of their, their operations just to keep up with the demand. Um, but they also mentioned that there's been this kind of political cover that the pandemic gave the executives because a lot of this technology, the RPA technology is not new. Like this has been around. It's not sophisticated. It's not sort of mind-blowing in its complexity, but it's fairly obviously displacing workers. And so a lot of executives have resisted it because, you know, it doesn't save them that much money. It's not that much more productive or, or sort of accurate than the humans doing those jobs. And if they implement RPA in normal times, you know, workers get freaked out. There's a backlash. Maybe the mayor of their city calls and asks them why they're <laughs> automating jobs. Like it's a it's a political headache in in the in the instances when it happens publicly. But during COVID, there's been no real backlash to that. In fact, customers, you know, want automation because it lets, you know, them get goods and services without, you know, coming into contact with with humans who might potentially be sick. Um, so it's kind of freed up executives to do the kinds of RPA automation that they have been that they've been wanting to do and, and have been capable of doing for years. And so the consultants I talked to said, yeah, we're we're fielding calls from a lot of people who are telling are saying, yeah, let's let's do that automation project we talked about a couple of years ago. Now is the right time. You're gonna come into our back office while everyone's out of the office and figure out which accountants we don't need anymore. Exactly. And and you know, there's some precedent for this. I mean Economic disruption is often when big changes happen in the workplace. So, you know, you, you, you've seen already, you know, millions of jobs disappearing during the pandemic. And some of those jobs might not come back. It might just be that these companies are able to operate with many fewer people. So you've called them boring bots. You say the technology is not so sophisticated. The industry calls it RPA. Like, there's a lot of pressure on making this seem not like not the most technologically sophisticated or exciting thing. It comes with a lot of change, but I'm wondering, are there any stories of RPA going horribly wrong? Right. I'm just imagining like, I think the most consumer facing automation that most people see is you call the customer support line and you go through the phone tree. It makes all the sense in the world on paper, right? If all I need is the balance of my credit card, I should just press five and the robot will read it to me. But like, I just want to talk to a person every time. Because that phone tree never has the options I want, or it's always confused, or something is wrong. There has to be a similar story in the back office where the accounting software went completely sideways and no one caught it, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's several stories like that in the book. There's a trading firm called Knight Capital that had an algorithm go haywire, and it lost millions of dollars in milliseconds and was never able to... There was actually just a a sort of story in, in, in the financial markets. I think it was, I forget it who it was. It was one of the big banks like accidentally wired hundreds of millions of dollars to someone else and like couldn't get it back. And so that was just like, they just lost that. And I'm not sure whether that was, I, I'm sure that automation had some role in that, but that might've been a human error. But there are also sort of like lower level instances of this going haywire. Um, one of the examples I, I talk about in the book is um, this guy, Mike Fowler, who was um, an Australian entrepreneur who came up with a way to like automate t-shirt design. So like, I don't know if you remember like five or six years ago, but there were all these like auto generated t-shirts on like Facebook that you were advertised. So, you know, it'd be like, kiss me. I'm, 
a tech blogger who loves <laughs> punk rock, you know, and those, those would just be like mad libs, you know, hang on, I got to buy a t-shirt uh, <laughs> or like my other car is a, you know, is a flying bike or whatever. You know, it was just like the weirdest, like most nonsensical combinations of like demographic targeting IDs, like plugged into t-shirt designs and uploaded to the internet. And Mike Fowler was one of the people who was making that. And he, he, you know, pioneered this algorithm that would take, you know, sort of catchphrases and plug words into them and then automatically generate the designs and list the SKUs on Amazon and, and, you know, make the ads for Facebook. And so he made a lot of money doing this. And then one day it like went totally wrong because he hadn't cleaned up the word bank that this algorithm drew from. And so there were people were noticing shirts for sale on Amazon that were saying things like, you know, keep calm and hit her or keep calm and rape a lot. Like just words that he had forgotten to clean out of the database. And so as a result, like his store got taken down, he like lost all his business, he had to he had to change jobs. Like it was a it was a traumatic event for him. Um and that's a colorful example, but there are I'm sure lots of more mundane examples of this happening in places that have implemented RPA. Is that cost baked in? Like I I'm imagining you know, the, the mid-sized bottling firm in the Midwest and the slick top five consulting companies selling RPA, everything's going to be great. Then they leave. The software is going sideways. No one really knows how to use it. Like, is that all baked into the cost, right? Is that just the consulting company gets to come back in and charge you more money to fix it? I think that's how it's going a lot of the time is the consulting companies end up sort of playing a kind of oversight role with the bots um, when they malfunction because there just isn't a whole lot of you know tech expertise in a lot of these companies um, and certainly not for for things like this so yeah I mean the consulting companies are making money hand over fist on this there's no question about it and um, this has been like a transformative line of business for them because it's actually like it's not that hard, frankly. Yeah. Um, a lot of the stuff is off the shelf. You can go into a company, you know, maybe they haven't updated their servers in, you know, 30 years. And so you're arriving with this thing that they think is very fancy, but is actually just like a couple lines of code that plug into their Oracle database. Um, so it makes them look like wizards and it doesn't require a whole lot of new technology and, and innovation. One of the other things you cover for the Times is misinformation, the dark side of the internet. You're talking a, a lot about white-collar workers, accountants, back-office people. They're often men. They're, it seems like there's a real a real apocalypse coming where a lot of sort of mid-level white dudes in seemingly safe corporate jobs get pushed out of the workplace, and then literally the podcast is called Rabbit Hole. Fall down the rabbit hole of YouTube disinformation. Like, I can just like add all that up in my head, but it's not very rigorous. Is that, do you see that connection? I do. You know, there is no sort of one stereotype of a person who, who gets radicalized on the internet. Um, but a lot of people that I've run into in, you know, reporting on extremist communities have a fairly similar origin story, which is like, I, you know, I graduated from college or community college. I had a lot of debt. There wasn't a lot of opportunity for me. And, you know, I needed a social life. And so this was sort of the, the way that I found status and meaning and friends and a purpose was by joining an extremist community. I, I don't know that the link is sort of causal, but I think it's probably correlated. There's a reason, you know, so many people are 
you know, out of the, the labor force participation rate is, is quite low um, historically. And so um, there are just a lot of people who are sitting at home looking for things to, you know, to, to, to do, things to entertain them, things to keep their attention, a sort of mission to plug into. And so maybe for some people that's um, an extremist community. Yeah, I just, for better or worse, I'm thinking about Fight Club, right? Which, you know, is a movie that has been framed and reframed many times over the years. But at the heart of it, there's a guy with a really, really boring white collar job that he hates. And he finds a community that is outside of that, like, and they blow up some credit agencies. I'm not saying that's happening here, but I, the, the population of disaffected people being pushed out of the workforce has second order effects some of which can be positive, but many of which are negative. And that doesn't seem to be factored into the RPA equation, either at the consultancy level, certainly not, and definitely not at the political level. Yeah. I mean, this is the big error that I think has resulted from giving this whole conversation about automation and AI over to economists and technologists, because those communities in particular look at things in the long run and in the aggregate. So they'll say, yeah, the Industrial Revolution, like, it wasn't great in all ways. And there was some child labor and, you know, some factories with, like, gross safety violations. But in the long run, people's lives improved. And, you know, we had, you know, more time to spend with our families and we weren't working back-breaking jobs on the farms. And I think that when I went back and started researching kind of contemporaneous accounts of these past technological shifts, like what really sticks out is how much this sucks for people. <laughs> like it's, it's like not a happy experience for a lot of them. I mean, the industrial revolution was horrible for workers. There were these squalid boarding houses where the factory workers would be put and they would be paid, you know, barely subsistence wages and they would basically be tortured at work and, and they would all get sick. And it was like, it was Dickensian and, and, and horrible. And so I think if you had gone to those people and said, well, you know, on the plus side, uh, 30 years from now, GDP will have risen 20%. And <laughs> like, they're going to be like, screw you. Like, I, I don't like this. Um, this is not making a material difference in my life for the better. In fact, it's made it much worse in my immediate circumstances. And so I think we have to look, yes, it's important to look at what happens in the long run in the aggregate with new technology, but it's also important to just listen to the people who are telling us what it's doing in their lives right now. I want to take a break there, and I want to come back, and I want to talk about the second half of your book, which is Rules to Avoid That Nightmare Scenario. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the internet, but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop. Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool Shopify Magic or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever, too, online or with their in-person point-of-sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash decoder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. 
shopify.com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Decoder. So the, the first chunk of your book, Kevin, is very much, here's the conditions of automation. Pay attention to this. It's happening way faster than you think. The second half of your book is like an instruction manual to, as you as an individual, how to dance around the wave of change that's coming. Walk me through that. Yeah, this is the happier portion of the book because it's, yeah, I it's saved about- the, the smallest <laughs> chunk of time in the podcast for the happy part. No, but I, I think it's important to give people the good and the bad news. Um, the bad news is that you know automation's coming and and it's going to displace people. But the good news is that there's something you can do about it, and it doesn't require becoming a coder. It doesn't require going to you know back to school for a STEM degree. It doesn't involve sort of productivity hacking. Um, what I found in in talking to people who work on AI is that it's actually just about being more human. Um, the things that we can do to protect ourselves, you know, I have nine of them in the book, but most of them revolve around this idea that we are going to need to move toward jobs and activities that can only be done by humans. I mean, that just makes sense, right? When the robots come into your workplace, the stuff that's left is the stuff that the robots can't do. So I was trying to figure out like what can't the robots do? What What is only done by humans right now? And what is likely to only be done by humans into the future? And so, you know, those are by definition, the very human things that I think we've been steering people away from, unfortunately, for years, telling them, you know, don't major in humanities. You know, I think Vinod Kosla and Mark Andreessen have both <laughs> made some some form of tirade against how the liberal arts are worthless and everyone should major in, in engineering and anything else is a waste of your time. But that's really, I mean, if you look at just what the AI researchers are doing, they're, they're not sending their kids to coding boot camps. They're sending their kids to the Waldorf school um, where they can learn to dance and play and be creative and express themselves. And, you know, they're not idiots. Like they know that the skills that are going to be valuable in the future um, are those softer human skills. Give me an example of some of those softer human skills that apply, apply broadly across the white collar workforce. I think the big one that people talk about is empathy, and I think that's that that is a key part of it. I mean, a lot of the jobs of the future will involve relating to other people. They will be interpersonal jobs, you know, nursing, therapy, social work, um, that kind of job. But I think that the discussion often stops there. I think there's there's a lot of pieces of empathy. One of them is sort of active listening, um, being able to sort of focus. I mean, that that's like a really key piece of the of the puzzle here is like you have to be able to control and direct your own attention, um, which is why there's an entire chapter in the book that's just about how to have a better relationship with your phone and and the other screen based devices in your life. I think one prerequisite for being a human is being able to sort of control what you think about. Other skills in the book, one of them I talk about is um, the ability to kind of read a room. This is something that I, I got from Jed Kolko, who's a, a, an economist, um, and he is gay, and he talks about the sort of experience of 
growing up as an LGBTQ person and having to kind of fit in to read people's states to figure out how safe am I here? What do people, you know, what, what kind of code do I have to switch into? Um, and obviously that's like not great that they have to do that. Um, I wish they didn't, but he said basically that skill of being able to kind of quickly take the emotional temperature of a room is a really important skill for the future. And that doesn't show up in any kind of sort of skills inventory, but that's going to be very valuable for the people who are good at doing that. Um, there are lots of others that I could go into, but they all kind of boil down to the sort of basic human skills that we nurture in little kids, sharing, playing well with others, you know, um, sort of being a good partner, being a good collaborator, but that we often let sort of atrophy as people get older. You have a a little vignette in your book of the guy who does your taxes and how he effectively competes with, I'm sure I've even read these ads on these podcasts with like Quicken or QuickBooks that'll, you just like dump the data on them directly from your, your horrible employee management software at work. And then like some taxes are generated and they cost 50 bucks. But you actually use a person and your vignette is like why his job still exists and how he saw competing with Quicken. Yeah, my my accountant is uh, this guy named Russ Garofalo and he is a former stand-up comedian. And one of the things I was interested in when I was looking at this book is like finding this survival stories. Like who are the people who should have been automated out of their jobs but weren't and why? Um, and Russ is a classic classic example of that. I mean, tax preparation is largely an automated business now. Most people use TurboTax or some form of software to do their taxes. And yet, you know, Russ is there, his firm's growing, he's doing well. So I wanted to figure out why that is. Um, and it's because he's he's a former stand-up comedian. He's really funny. It's really interesting to talk to him. And he's really good at sort of relating to people in a thoughtful and interesting way. And he hires other creative people and pays for them all to take improv classes because he thinks that those skills will make them better accountants. And he's right. Like it is genuinely an enjoyable experience. (laughs) Like I have to call him soon because taxes are due in, in less than a month. And like, I'm looking forward to that. That's not going to be a chore for me because I actually enjoy talking to him. So the sort of human side of any profession is just getting more and more valuable as automation takes over more and more of the actual functional work of doing taxes how you're able to differentiate yourself from TurboTax as an accountant, if you're Russ, is by giving people an experience that they want um, and not necessarily being the, the most you know, eagle-eyed tax preparer. It's about being the best human. One of the tropes of all coverage of Gen Z or millennials or whatever is we now pay for experiences over products, right? We spend more money on vacations. We spend... I think every generation does this, but these are the tropes of covering particularly people in their 20s because their dollars shift the economy very fast. But the idea that we pay for experiences over products, that we pay for interactions over you know, a fancier car, is that what you're getting at? Is it, At the end of the day, your account is still using Excel, and you could have TurboTax do that for free, essentially, but you want to talk to a person who's funny, so you're willing to pay a premium for that? Yeah, I think that's the lesson of the past, you know, little while here is that experiences are really valuable for people. And so it's not just going to be that people are paying for experiences in travel and retail and hospitality. 
They're going to be paying for experiences when they hire a lawyer or go to a doctor or, you know, engage um, a marketing firm. I mean, they're, they're not going to be paying for necessarily efficiency um, and expertise. They're going to be paying to feel something. And that's one of the sort of rubrics that I've used uh, to, to figure out which jobs are going to be more stable as we get you know, more and more automated as a society. The jobs that involve making things for people are are going to become less and less valuable and less and a smaller and smaller piece of the economy. And the bigger piece, the growing piece, is going to be jobs that involve making people feel things. Um, so that's not an original idea. I've, I've gotten that from a number of AI researchers um, because they point out, you know, this is already happening. You can already see this happening, this kind of artisanal boom in goods and services that sort of have more of a human touch to them than something something that's mass produced in a factory by robots. Isn't the counterexample of this already that customer service at big companies is is horrible? Like I use Google every day. I use all of their products and services every day. If something goes wrong with Google, my only real recourse is to Google it, which has always seemed like Kafka-esque to me. That I'm, I'm turning this company that has a broken product to figure out how to fix this broken product. And I there's no one to call. If I have to call AT&T, it's funny to me that you feel more excited about calling your tax professional than I feel about calling AT&T, right? That, that they should be on the same spectrum. But I know that's going to be a negative experience. If that is an easy way for AT&T to boost its customer loyalty, to make people feel better about it, why wouldn't they spend that cost if it's so obvious? Well, it's not obvious right now because I think a lot of companies haven't gotten very good at that. I mean, they've, they're so involved in the mindset that, you know, Customer service is a cost center that should be made as small as possible. Um, but you see this sort of happening around the edges right now. I mean, let's take Google as an example. So, you know, one of the ways that sort of the only new successful email product, you know, successful being defined as like a lot of people I know are very excited about it of the past 10 years is this app Superhuman, which actually is built on Gmail. It's like a subscription. It's like a high-end luxury subscription email product that's a sort of a skin for Gmail, but that includes all this extra functionality. And one of the sort of key pieces of value that you get when you subscribe to Superhuman is like a, a person a rep from the company like does a like zoom with you to like walk you through how to use the email. It's like a very like bespoke sort of concierge model of of something that you know is free when you just get it on the open market of Gmail. But like people are willing to pay for that extra touch, that extra sort of you know part that that involves relating to to humans and also you know allows them to get a what they see as a better product. So I think that model is transferring to a lot of industries where you'll have the kind of mass experience that is purely machine driven and there are very few humans involved in it. And then there'll be kind of this luxury skin on top of it that involves much more human contact and connection. I love the idea that it's all software at the bottom and it's just, you get to pay for various levels of, of people to help you use it in empathetic ways. Yeah. I mean, we might all have a team of sort of IT, you know, tech coaches. Uh, one of the fascinating case studies I came across in the, in the course of writing this book was Best Buy. Um, and Best Buy, like, was supposed to die. <laughs> like, like <laughs> Amazon was supposed to kill Best Buy many years ago because they sold all the same stuff, like big box was going away, like Best Buy was, you know, largely dependent on, like, new DVD and video game releases for profits, which, like, went away. So, 
I was sort of interested in how they didn't die, what what they did. And it turns out that they moved to like a very high-touch customer service model. They started this in-home advisor program where, you know, for a fee, they would come to your house, you know, a Best Buy rep would take a look at your, you know, your your stereo system and your speakers and tell you like which upgrade you needed or like they would sort of be there with you as kind of a personal tech consultant. And then they would sell you stuff on the back end. Um, but the the human connection was actually what drove the, the sort of renaissance of Best Buy. It was not that they competed with Amazon on price or logistics, but they, they, they did do those things. But the thing that set them apart was really that unlike Amazon, where everything is done by robots and, and sort of low-paid human pickers in warehouses, um, they would actually send someone to your house who would talk to you, who would talk you through it and answer your questions. Several years ago, I talked to the CEO of a company called Asurian, uh, which is a tech support company in Nashville, and they they sell phone insurance. They also other stuff, but their their fastest growing line of business is they just sell a subscription to tech support, and they just know every problem that you might have with Bluetooth on your iPhone, and you can call them and they'll just be friendly and help you. And like people need it and they get, they're just like, there's just 10,000 people in Nashville who are helping people set up their Roku's every day. And that to me is like, it feels like a huge miss, right? Silicon Valley, particularly consumer products in Silicon Valley, they pride themselves in being easy to use, but there's an entire company that's built a business. Best Buy has built a business around how hard it is to actually use. And I, you can see that just bleeding into the enterprise space. Totally. And, and I think companies are starting to realize this. I mean, one you know, example I've been looking at recently is a company like Airbnb, which, you know, for many years had like a very limited customer service department and, and, and ability. And then like they started getting a lot of people who were angry at them. Like it's like <laughs> the pandemic hit and you know, hosts were having their stuff canceled and, you know, people were showing up to residences and they looked nothing like what they looked in the photos. Like there was a lot of bad juju um, around that product and the customer service. And so they they sort of essentially de-automated that process. They they hired a lot of humans um, and trained them in sort of empathetic communication. And and so now they have like, you know, many, many customer service people that you can actually call and talk to. So I think when businesses get into trouble with the automated model is usually when they start de-automating uh, and bringing in humans because there's just like, there's a lot that machines can't do. We've just got a couple minutes left. Your book, the headline is Nine Rules. What are the nine rules? Well, I have to save something for the, the premium <laughs> premium tier uh, Verge Plus subscribers. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll just I'll list I'll list them and and we can uh, leave some of the explanation to uh, people who actually you know buy the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, come on, man! This is like a, I got There's got to be a curiosity gap. Yeah. Um, Give them eight rules, but the the ninth will surprise you. Oh yeah, the ninth one is crazy. So I'm just gonna read eight. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, uh, okay, let's go. Be surprising, social, and scarce. Resist machine drift. Demote your devices. Leave handprints. Don't be an endpoint. Treat AI like a chimp army. Build big nets and small webs. Learn machine age humanities. And number nine, I'm not going to reveal. Amazing. All of those are curiosity gaps in and of themselves. I don't, I don't know that you gave much away, but it's a great book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I am just so excited that I got to talk to somebody for almost an hour about RPA after years 
I have been waiting for this my entire life. It's like this dark cloud of consulting on the horizon. It's just like sweeping over America. And I'm like, I can see it. And no one wants to see it except for you. So that that was great. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Well, anytime you want to call up and, and just, you know, chat on a Sunday about RPA, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have my number. If I can't get to sleep at night, I'll give you a call. Exactly. Tremendous. Thanks a lot, Kevin. The book is out now. Out now. Yep. You can go to futureproofthebook.com. Thanks again to Kevin Roos for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson, Creighton Simone, and Andrew Marino, with help from Aria Bracci. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next week.